Hello everyone, welcome to episode number 26. I'm trying to think about what I was doing when I was 26. I think people are generally finding themselves a little more, starting to be a little less silly maybe, maybe taking on some responsibility, buying a car or a house or spending all their money on touring their band or whatever the hell I was doing. Um, I think as far as this podcast goes, it is finding itself a little bit more. It is still a little bit of a dickhead and has a lot to learn. But hey, that will probably be the case well into the podcast 30s and 40s and probably 50s and 60s and 70s. Time will tell. Anyway, today on the podcast is the lovely and hilarious Sam Cromack from Ballpark Music. We recorded this a couple of weeks ago, but then lightning hit my Telstra pit outside my house and the internet has been down ever since. So I have a good excuse. Uh, anyway, Ballpark Music are on tour at the moment. Their new album, Good Mood, is out and it's super catchy and awesome. So please go check it out. Sam Strange Show Story was drawn by Joshua Gilsonen. You can check out more of his work on Instagram at Soft Nudie Jazz. One word. Like and subscribe the podcast. Rate it if you like. Thanks again so much for listening. Here is episode number 26, Sam Cromack. <laughs> nice doing an interview in the morning for a change yeah i'm gonna be honest i nearly forgot about it <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing were you just having breakfast and you went, oh shit i'm gonna go to say um well i was having a big sleep in um oh, nice and then i sort of stirred and checked my phone and thankfully you had messaged to be like hey here's my mobile if you need it and i was like holy shit. crap i have to go do that <laughs> i always knew it was on but it just I escaped my mind for one moment. <laughs> what did you do last night? Did you have a big night? No, I've had a big weekend though. Um, the well, Our new record came out on Friday. So we did like a thing at the Triffid on Friday night. Um, and and then we did like another in-store yesterday at Sonic Sherpa in yeah. Stone's Corner. Um, I love that so, store. Yeah, I haven't, it's not like I've even um, been partying that hard. It's just been so hot. I feel I like know. I've honestly sweated out about... <laughs> A hundred liters of liquid from my body doing the two performances. So you are looking at the end of each lean. day. I felt cooked, absolutely yeah. cooked. Congratulations yeah. on your album being out. Thank you. How did Friday night go? Yeah, it was good. It was um, well, the label is always kind of pushing for some extra, you know, initiative on the on the week of the release sure. to be like, you know, how can we sell some yeah. more of these bad boys? Yeah. <laughs> Um, what so, other ideas have you come up with? Oh, uh, we've played in Queen Street Mall a bunch of times, which um, has the desired effect. But we're always like, please, we don't want to play in the mall <laughs> again. It's such a pain in the ass. It's hot too. That yeah. mall is so hot. Yeah. It's just a weird time in there. So we <laughs> said, why don't we just throw like a bit of a shindig at the Trifford where it's really laid back. So it was kind of just like... A bit of a party. Great. Yeah, we went full beer garden and played a few acoustic songs. Great. And um, yeah, just said good day to fans and had some beers. It was actually really fun. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. What's um, what's your relationship like with your fans? Do you feel like you have a good connection to them? I think so. Yeah, I think our fans are really 
um, lovely people. Uh, I feel like, strangely enough, maybe I'm one of the band members that has like one of the weaker connections with them just because I feel like that's just kind of how I am. Like it's less in my nature to like interact with them online and stuff like that. Um, So I actually really love meeting a lot of them face to face, even though they get extremely shy in those moments, but they do seem like a really cool group of people. Yeah. Yeah. Who are just a lot like us in many ways. Yeah, I find it interesting talking to people about fans because um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people that play in like heavy rock bands or like punk bands and their fans can be so extreme and so like <laughs> rude even. Oh, right. And sometimes just people don't like their fans. <laughs> uh, no, I definitely like ours. We've started joking that we're um, Brisbane's politest band. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think we're attracting very polite fans That's as well. That's great. That's good. <laughs> the whole thing's super polite. You've always been very polite to me when I met you. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Manners are important. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone. Everyone thinks that though. Yeah, well, I guess some people are punks. <laughs> True. Hey, um, tell me about um growing up. So, did you grow up at Lennox Head? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I basically spent my whole childhood there. Um. And what was? Were you surrounded by music? Were you a big music fan growing up? Um. Yeah. Well, uh, my parents, neither of them are musicians, and there's not really any musicians in my family. My nana. Played the organ <laughs> pretty, pretty badly, I think. What kind of organ? <laughs> None of the family seemed to really <laughs> rejoice when she was playing the organ. Um, oh, gosh. I don't know, like, organ makes and models well enough, but it was like one of those classic ones that you'd see in an op shop now. Like that's multi-tiered. Like, yeah, multi-tiered with pedals and right. a, a million colourful buttons. Um, you know, but they, everything basically sounds the same. Yeah. <laughs> And I I have no idea what, like, her repertoire would have been. Like, what the hell would she have been playing? It definitely wasn't any, like, popular music from the 50s or 60s or anything. So, You're right. Maybe God like knows classical. what she was doing. Yeah, and it wasn't classical. Right. Yeah, no, I... Yeah. Just like the demo button. It must have been, like, hillbilly folk music kind of that sort of awesome. stuff. <laughs> but in answer to your question... uh Mum and dad are just big music lovers. And Mm. I think dad um, very much hoped to be like a guitarist and he can sort of like, um, you know, play like the blues, like a few chords and stuff. Um, But he's very reluctant to to pick up an instrument. Um, But yeah, just they have the most massive record collection and they always played music. So my sister and I... um, both recall just like singing and dancing and like getting to choose records from such a young age. So I guess that stuff really like, yeah, has an impact on you. So what were the, what were the um, records that you were choosing? Um, We definitely um, leaned towards like a lot of the classic um, 60s, 70s stuff. So heaps of Beatles. um, uh, We listened to lots of Rolling Stones, um, Elton John, um, once I started to learn guitar, um, lots of dad's more obviously guitar-driven stuff, lots of 70s rock, like Led Zeppelin, ACDC, all that sort of stuff. 
lots of Australian things in there too, That's like cool. um, sky hooks and stuff yeah. like that. That's so funny. I think that the especially the sixties pop stuff, you can really hear that influence in your music. Yeah, Beatles is a massive one. My yeah. sister and I, pro- probably like many kids, I'm always intrigued that that band kind of can cast a spell on little kids so much. Yeah. Um, once we discovered them, we insisted on playing them all yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah, I had the same experience. We were very obsessed. What was your favourite record? Um, well, I think it was actually, we would have been pretty young when the number one album came out. So yeah. mum and dad had that on CD and I think they were even going through a bit of a like, oh, you know, remember Resurgence. the Beatles kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And from there, my sister and I would sort of start to pick um, records out. I think mum and dad had most of them. Actually, it's funny. One of our favorites was um, Beatles for Sale. Yeah. Which is not That's like pretty poppy. Yeah, yeah. But that one, I played that a lot. Um, yeah, right. And it's probably one of the lesser known ones. Yeah. Mine uh, was always Rubber Soul. Yeah. I love Rubber Soul as well. Yeah. And I was obsessed with that girl song because it was so weird that he'd have that big, like. Like that breath in. Yeah. <laughs> so gross. It is gross. <laughs> but I was really drawn to it. I was like, what? I can't believe this is in a song. Yeah. It's pretty seedy, isn't it? Yeah. It's really seedy. <laughs> it's really lusting after that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe I've always been drawn to that weird seediness in songs. Well, John's my favorite and I've remained such a huge John fan. Me too. And I think I just have always loved that about him he just seems to take a few extra risks in how he expresses Definitely. himself and wants to express every part of his personality yeah um even the ugly bits yeah definitely um he was a pretty giant jerk yeah he doesn't have the best reputation no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i've been obsessed with him too he was definitely my favorite but then i saw paul mccartney play the other day did you go to the show yeah absolutely it and was like the greatest it was night the greatest ever. <laughs> i had the best time felt like santa was coming yeah, totally. 100 times at once <laughs> 100 years of christmas condensed and into one night def- and even like that because you know how he started on um he started on hard, hard day's, day's night, night and yeah. just that chord is so like oh. universally recognized as being that song yep. and everyone just went apeshit oh it was yeah right i was so wasted and <laughs> yeah and like all the people around me were a bit stiff and i was just like straight <laughs> up out of my chair just like bring it on we are we were a little bit too and we got shushed the oh, lady in front of us on. turned around and shushed i'm like we're in a stadium you can't shush in a stadium we're seeing the Beatles, you? you fool <laughs> Um, so tell me about how your musical heroes changed from early pop Beatles to ACDC to Incubus. (laughs) Is that what happened? Pretty much. Yeah. I don't know what, I think I must've got some virus or something. Dad and mum had like schooled me really well. I was off to this great start. Um, and then, yeah, you become a teenager and you get to sort of choose your own adventure for a bit there. I feel like you went down the chapter that you die at the end. Like, Incubus, <laughs> sorry, you're dead. Yeah, you go back to the start, yeah. Um, you know, that was that were fun years, though. Like, yeah. um, <clears throat> I guess what you're really exploring at that age is um, you just having your own sense of identity. You're yeah. obviously wanting to branch away from what mum and dad Definitely. kind of have ownership over and you're... Choosing a bunch of terrible stuff to call your own. But, um, you know, that all went hand in hand with learning instruments. I think that's like such a classic thing. Um, so when did you get your first guitar? I was 10, I'm pretty sure. 
electric? Nine or ten. No, I got a little um, nylon string acoustic. One of the ones that's like probably 90 bucks at your local music shop. Great. And it's, I, I still have it. It's at mum and dad's place. And yeah, it's a bit worse for wear these days. But um, yeah, I love that guitar. So what were the songs you were learning? How did you get from playing a nylon string acoustic to writing your own songs? It's funny, I just want to mention when I got the nylon string guitar, I got it for my birthday and I can remember I got it and I didn't know anything about playing guitar, but I used to strum all the strings open, like I just swiped the guitar with my hand (laughs) and me and my sister would be like, Hard Day's Night, it's the start of Hard Day's Night, like we thought it was it and we'd always just go, bling. (laughs) Full circle. Um, I think um, I started learning really basic just chords and stuff. And my dad's friend, who is like a blues guitarist, started teaching me. It was all very rudimentary for a long time. And um, uh, that guy was definitely giving me like a more traditional kind of um, start to lessons with like, a you know, a bit of theory in there and stuff. Um, And I think I was still young to the point where I wasn't really developing like a huge interest in it yet. It was more like, you know, swimming training or something. It was like, come on, you got to go to guitar lessons kind of thing. (laughs) Um, But then he had to leave town and our next door neighbors had um, two sons who were a bit older than me and they were learning guitar. And they said, well, why don't you use the guy that teaches our sons? And he used to drive from Byron Bay to their house and teach both their sons. So he'd go and give them a lesson. And then he'd come to my house and give me a lesson and, his name was Noel. I can't remember his surname, but... Gallagher. <laughs> that's it. The guy from Oasis. <laughs> um, he was such a kind, um, soulful man who Great. like taught me for years, probably four or five years, I reckon. And he um, just really nurtured like that love of music mm. and let it lead the way. Like, And he would let me steer the lessons. Like, And it basically... For years, it was the same thing every week. He'd come in and I'd say, I want to learn this song. And he'd listen to the song and he could work stuff out so quickly. And then he'd teach me. So there was almost no theory as going into it. It was all just about me learning stuff that I liked. And I right. guess along the way, you just become curious about new things you're doing. So yeah, yeah that's how I learned. And that's great. So you learned a lot through listening. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, me and my dad used to sit, we'd literally sit on the floor with dad's records sprawled everywhere and we'd pick one and put it on the record player and then he'd sit there and, and work it out. And me and dad used to think that that was like witchcraft, that he yeah. could just sit there and just work out any song. Um, Can you do that now? Yeah, pretty much. Awesome. Yeah, it's a skill you feel like you're never going to get and then yeah. one day you're like... Shit, that's like exactly what I do when I hear any music. Yeah. yeah. So then you went on to study music later on. Yeah. Um, and that's how you met your band members at QUT, right? So yeah, stayed in love with music all through high school and had a few like classic high school bands. And What um, was the name of your first band? Um, oh, it's actually really embarrassing and not for like the it. usual reasons. <laughs> I feel like the name is kind of racist. <laughs> What is it? I shouldn't even laugh at. Oh, well, we were just kids. We honestly looked through the dictionary um, and just picked a word. And clearly we didn't even read the meaning of it. We called our band Kanaka. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know that word? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty funny. I don't feel super proud of that. (laughs) 
I try to avoid talking about it as much as I can. I just, I like asking that question because it's normally a dick reference. Yeah. So I mean, we, could we steered clear of all the dick references, um, you know, and we just, yeah, <laughs> bloody hell. What happened to Kanaka? Um, we... Um, we were we were pretty much an Incubus cover band. <laughs> we legit covered like most of the Incubus catalog and um, wrote a few of our own songs, which sounded like Incubus <laughs> D sides. <laughs> and yeah, um, it sort of just fizzed out, fizzed out in a natural sort of way by the end of high school. I think once I got interested in Radiohead, um, yeah, it's like we all didn't speak the same language anymore. Yeah, right. I sort of. I betrayed, <laughs> you could betray I betrayed the, the, the distortion trust. community. <laughs> <laughs> so what made you want to study music? I was just obsessed. Yeah, yeah. I um, uh, studied it in school and um, I, I did en- end up having to change teachers eventually. So I did get a teacher who like kind of helped me brush up on the more classic theory side of things a bit. Um, and yeah, I just absolutely had my heart set on being, you know, a famous musician. <laughs> did you did you think about fame? Um, well, I mean, I use that term, but I, I, I guess when you're younger, you're definitely more sucked into the whole rock and roll mythology, and you think, sure. "Damn, that's cool!" Like, and of course, as I've gotten older, you see it for what it is. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, it's been my obsession with music that's like kind of kept it going. Yeah. I, yeah, but. Maybe I'm the wrong person to ask about how much fame I'm craving. <laughs> I find it really interesting with you in particular because I've seen you guys play a few times and whenever I've talked to you before or after a show, you're always like pretty introverted. You're very like kind, polite. Um, and then you get on stage and I feel like this persona comes out where you're like super um, energetic and, and extroverted on stage and... You have this like, come on, like, yeah. you know, I find it so interesting. I don't even like that guy. <laughs> no, that guy's amazing. Yeah. I find it su- such a great um, change that can happen in a person from being off stage and being on stage. Yeah, it, I, I don't even understand it myself. And I was literally thinking about it even just yesterday. Like it's something I've thought about a lot. Like I will honestly spend so much time in say the lead up to a tour um, talking to myself or to my wife and being like, I want to just behave like I normally behave on stage. Why does this weird guy come out when I go up there? That's like swears like a sailor and just is like kind of annoying. <laughs> Says no, stuff like make some noise. Like, he's I don't even great. know why I do it. Like I honestly, each show I'm like, all right, get it together. <laughs> but that guy is connecting with people. Like audiences really respond to to that i have this the same thing with um ben eli from regurgitator he's he's that guy like on stage and he's a very sort of polite person off stage too you know like quiet and i find that really interesting too and but you you almost need someone like that in a in a rock and roll band you know like you need someone who's gonna be the good vibe guy yeah, and you probably want him to just be like that on yeah. stage. You definitely don't want yeah, that guy right. like no. coming home to like share your room with you at <laughs> 2 a.m. Yeah, yeah, so it's probably handy. But I guess what we're talking about is like the stage really does transform you yeah. and, and people into something else. Like it, I always make the comparison that it's like some crazy drug. Like it's such a high up it there. Is. Like all your perception is warped and... Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, it's um, it's very addictive too. It's, there's yeah. really something that happens up there. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you started your band in at QUT at at the uni. A lot of bands that form at uni, from from my perception, are don't, awful. I, <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say they don't tend to to stay together. You know, they that's sort of like a uni project, and then they go off to do their own thing after. So did you guys sort of make a decision that you would try and make this work? I don't know. I think um, uh, it's just all so strange how it happened. Like, um, and it does feel kind of fateful in a way. Like we were literally thrown together by um, uh, the teacher who was like, yeah. you know, you people sitting here, you're in, excuse me, you're in a group. Yeah. Um, and I think to begin with, like we were all kind of ambitious people who I think had gone to uni with the hopes of like kind of maybe meeting other musicians and starting a band. But I think for a long time, this feeling of like, oh, you know, we're just doing this as part of this class, like whatever, that that sort of attitude prevailed. Um, and probably for years, like we just were kind of having a bit of fun and just, you know, I, I don't think we had any strong long-term vision for what we were doing at that point. Um, so yeah, the closest moment I can think of to what you described where you're like, all right, let's like, um, switch into taking this a bit more seriously was when we got offered to do a, um, tour with hungry kids are hungry. And it was like a big national tour with like capital city dates and heaps of regional dates. It must've been like 20 shows or Mm. something like that. Um, and yeah, we were all working just classic dead-end uni jobs and there wasn't a lot of money and, you know, the usual story. And to do this tour was going to be a huge, like, kind of sacrifice and commitment. And I personally was one of the people who was most anxious about it and was like, oh, you know, I don't know if I can justify, like, not working. And, mm. um, yeah, I've always felt thankful that I had bandmates who were like, no, we've got to do it. Like, this, is, this could be like a break kind of thing because I sometimes fear that if I was left to my own devices, my personality might have like retreated at too many crucial points. Um, So yeah, I definitely remember that moment being like, all right, let's do this. Yeah, Yeah, commitment. Yeah. And then did you have to go back to work after that? Yeah, well, I mean, you'd know what Australian touring is like. You're basically in your hometown sort of Monday to Thursday and then you go away for the weekends. Um, so yeah, when we were back in Brisbane, we were just desperately trying to earn some money and it was tricky too. Cause I just worked, I had like a lot of uni during the week and then I used to work, I worked like every Saturday and Sunday for like, you know, the years like 18, 19, 20, 21, I reckon with just no breaks. Um, so suddenly not being able to work on weekends was like really challenging for me. I had to like try and find ways to work during the week and did you have a job that was that lent itself to changing it up yeah well i worked in a cafe so i basically just needed to yeah just try and (laughs) talk the bosses yeah which meant like basically not being able to go to a lot of classes and stuff too so it's just a big juggling act but definitely when the band started to have a bit of momentum uni took a back seat a little bit because Mm -hmm. i mean we were there going like well we're studying music like we feel like the dream is sort of coming alive a bit. Like, I feel like that's probably the most logical thing to um, prioritize. Yeah. Did you find, I know that QT is a bit of a different course, but do you find that studying music and understanding 
um, like chord origin and, and notes and stuff was a hindrance to writing music or, or to be more experimental in songwriting? Oh, this is another thing that I feel like I've thought lots about over the years. Um, I guess the big question I ask myself is like, was it beneficial me going and studying? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I've arrived at some definitive answer. Um, there's absolutely been times where, in reference to what you said, where I've been like, ah, I feel like this extra layer of knowledge kind of stinks up the room a bit. Like it's <laughs> it's preventing me from having that simple, pure, um, slightly naive sense of writing, which, you know, the world has found charming for such a long time. It's yeah. like, and I think people can also sense when people are faking that. Yeah. So... Yeah, I've definitely had to um, find ways to incorporate that extra um, knowledge that we all have about music to our advantage. How do you do it? How do you do you think about it every time you write a song? Like what what chord should this go to theoretically or do you just put your fingers somewhere? Well, I feel like um, maybe even before I studied, I did have that interest in like um i guess with a band like radiohead that i got really into like they in basically every single song they deviate from the key somewhat you know yeah. and that became a sort of value for me and um our our keys player paul is especially like that too so um yeah i, I guess i came to be like oh well that's just one of our things like that's something that we've got to try and use to our advantage and i know when i'm listening to music still something that like has that little surprise kind of pivot in the music makes my ears prick up. Um, yeah. But I think what we had to learn was to not um, not to flaunt that because it can be really like cringy and yeah. eye-rolly kind of. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess uh, it's just felt like this whole process of learning how to, um, well, just make make the best music you can like in a way that, you know, suits your personality or whatever. Yeah. Um, did you ever have voice lessons? I did one year of singing lessons when I was about 16. I had, yeah, like I said, been learning guitar for a long time at that point and was starting to write some songs and sing. Um, and <laughs> I must have sounded shit. My parents were like, maybe you should get some lessons. <laughs> Do you feel like they were helpful? Oh, look, I want to say yes, because the lady that taught me was super lovely and I did really enjoy the time with her. It definitely <clears throat> um, made me understand that there was this whole world that I didn't know about. Like um, she would put a score in front of me and she would just follow the score and I yeah. would have to say like, I can't do this. Like <laughs> I, I'm just pretending when I'm looking at these notes. Like if I don't know the song we're singing already, like I'm screwed. <laughs> So I got like a bit more understanding about like, um, you know, sort of the contour of melody yeah. a bit. Um, but yeah. And then she gave me a lot of tips and I felt like once I got in the physical position where she's like, all right, now you're ready to sing. I felt like super <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. I felt like a mannequin, like at best <laughs> and less. <laughs> when you've been doing something a long time and then someone says, this is actually the technique you're meant to be using it's yeah. so unnatural because you've been doing it the other Absolutely. way for so long. Yeah. So it's hard to train your body to to do it properly, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but do you feel like, I mean, you have a beautiful singing voice. Do you feel oh, like... Thank you. I don't feel like a singer. 
Really? Yeah, still to this day. Like, that's not how I see myself. Like, Do you see yourself as a guitarist? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you see yourself as a singer? Um, well, maybe it's just like simple order of events. <laughs> I got a guitar first. Singing felt like... Um, when I was in my high school band, um, we were all shy teenage boys and um, I was the least shy one. So I got pushed towards the microphone yeah, um, and just had a go. And um, I felt like because um, I'd been singing, just, um, you know, listening to records and playing guitar, like I had an, a concept of what the tune needed to do. So I basically just tried to do that best I could and just imitated what I heard. And um, yeah, I honestly feel like my evolution as a singer has just been trial and error, just like doing it over and over and over and over again and like hating like 90% of it, yeah. like still listen back to most of our records and just I'm like, what were you doing? Like, <laughs> um, I think that's quite natural though. Yeah. Everyone hates the sound of their own voice. Yeah. But it's good. I mean, I, I have the same thing, but I think there comes a point when you must go, well, I've made, you've made five records. Yeah. Something, um, you know, like you can see, you can see the progression and you can see that you're improving and that you're. Absolutely. It's totally this record. And I was getting there on the last one too, where I start to feel like, um, I finally feel like I've like become the version of myself that was in my mind mm. from a young age. And it's, I feel like I finally learned how to execute what I th feel like I wanted to be for a long time. That's great. I feel like um, pitch was something that wasn't like a ginormous problem for me. Like that kind of always felt okay. The thing that I've had to learn to do is like the manner in which I sing, like how much... Um, like the way I'm expressing myself mm. in my voice. Um, like it's funny, we talked about the thing in Girl by the Beatles. Yeah. The big, like I had this weird tendency to put in all this annoying bullshit in all the <laughs> gaps on all our early records. Like I was the most <laughs> fidgety person. Um, what kind of thing? Oh, just like um, all this precocious shit. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, always counting in, always saying, all right. And like, um, and, but that's that good vibes guy that we were talking about <laughs> earlier. <laughs> that guy wants to go. GVG. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's like, that guy's cool. I think he's good at communicating. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like, um, me and good vibes guy have got like a nice balance now. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got five albums. Um, I think you're a super prolific songwriter. Do you feel like you constantly have the need to write songs or do you feel like you need to keep the momentum going or both? Um, yeah, I guess both. It's definitely changing a bit as I get older. Um, do you always have something to write about? Well, that's probably the hardest part mm. as you write more and more songs is the storytelling aspect of it becomes... Um, increasingly hard, especially as you get older and life kind of naturally smooths out a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, there's kind of less turmoil than when I was 19 or whatever. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, you just kind of have to look for, um, yeah, new things in life. I guess you're still always discovering as a person. Um, 
But you just there's only so many love songs about your wife you can write. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I don't or know. Is maybe there? <laughs> <laughs> Do you write from uh, characters' perspectives, or is it always autobiographical? Um, well, I feel like both but i feel like i also have never been like super strict with that and if anything i kind of like blurring it a bit mm. yeah i definitely like having some like a certain amount of confusion mm. in in the lyrics um do you have one line in your song one of your songs that every time you sing it you it takes you back to a certain moment or like a a really visceral experience that you had yeah absolutely heaps um because definitely, like, one of my biggest values in songwriting is um, just that age-old saying of sing what you know or, or, yeah. or speak what you know or whatever, write what you know. So, I, every song needs to be real. Even yeah. if it's not very um, interesting or juicy, it's got to come from, like, it's got to be real feelings. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess that really helps me when I'm performing. Like I really actually do try to go to the place where I was in my mind yeah. when I'm performing those songs. Um, so, yeah, when I sing stuff off the first album, I I do think back to the relationship I was in and it, and I, my relationship ended, which, um, uh, well, during the whole writing of that album. Mm. So that song is like half love songs. Yeah that are filled with kind of pain because you can you can sense that something's not right and then and then just straight up kind of break up songs so yeah. yeah it's easy to go back there and then like even in the records following that I guess a lot of the times I was just exploring my own feelings you know good ones and bad ones and yeah it's just like it's kind of like a a scrapbook in mm. a way yeah when you have a lot of time in your hands when you're trying to write a song do you get uneasy about trying to produce something all the time? Uh, yeah, I think definitely when I switched into basically having the band as my full-time occupation, mm. um, on one hand, it feels like the greatest victory in your life. You know, it's kind of what I dreamt of and it's like kind of sold as this unachievable thing. It was unbelievable that mm. I was like, shit, I'm actually a musician, you know? I can write it. I'm not a vocalist, but I am a musician. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was like a weird transition into being like, wow, this is like all I do now. Yeah. Um, and even though people are always like, oh, you're so busy. It's like, well, if you saw me day to day, I actually have sometimes long periods with nothing on and no structure in my life. And it's hard to talk about it without sounding like a spoilt brat because it sounds like the dream, but it's challenging. Like you it have is, to yeah. learn to be your own boss and to put structure in your life. And if you don't have some kind of plan, your creative kind of workflow can fall apart as mm. well because so much of that had previously come from like creativity was like a way to fill in the gaps in an otherwise busy life. You know, I was working in cafes and I had studies and stuff yeah. and um, writing a song was like this thing that you like itched to do all day. I'd be making coffees like, oh man, I got this melody I can hear. I can't wait to get home and have 10 minutes on the guitar. So yeah, I definitely think um, being busy or having mundane kind of tasks that are non-creative uh, in your life can help fuel your creativity and that sometimes just being given 
all the resources and all the time in the world doesn't necessarily... It's not conducive. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was doing music full-time when I was just playing in Regurgitator for like four years and that's when I wrote my, my first album... But I remember finding it really tough. I would get anxious when I went into my studio because I didn't know if that was going to be a day where I would produce anything or not, or I would feel restless and not, you know, I wouldn't be able to just sit in a room with a guitar or a keyboard yeah. um, for too long. Do you have anything like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've been in that exact same position. I remember I really, really felt that would have been after our third record was Pudding Head and I think I still might have been doing like a tiny bit of um, like hospitality work during that time and that was probably around the time I transitioned out of that. So after that record, the band did start working on some stuff but it was not coming as easily as it usually did so I kind of took a bit of a break and did a solo record and I'd done a few solo records prior so I was really excited to do another one especially now that I had all this time and um yeah gosh it was such an uphill battle like yeah yeah, going into my little room being like you know this is what you dreamed of Sam like why is this um so hard now I know yeah I I hated it like my wife would get home and I'd be like help Oh uh, yeah, I've I've found that really hard too. And it is yeah, it's it's unnatural to I maybe not unnatural, but I feel it is really challenging doing music for a living. Um because people quite often have the they have the thought that it is all sort of playing gigs and having fun and they don't realize that the work that goes into writing and the the frame of mind you have to put yourself in um it can be really emotionally challenging. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, don't get me wrong, like it's still a massive joy and a huge privilege. And I feel like I've um, had a few years at this kind of um, lifestyle now. So I feel like I'm getting better at it. Um, But yeah, I, I often say to my wife, like, I think the trickiest thing about this job is that at the end of the day, I'm an artist and that's, I guess, what other musicians are too or any type of artist. And when you are an artist, your personal life is tangled in with your work. So Mm. in many ways, like you're never getting um, a break. Uh, Like work is life, life is work. Like, and it's just this one big game that like can be just super fatiguing. Yeah. Um, So we were saying earlier that, it's good to have a space outside of your home to work in. How long have you had a separate space? So the band uh, has had a studio now since um, May last year. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be yeah a year this May. Um, has that helped work-life balance? Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. been amazing. Uh, the band did set up like a little kind of studio when we did our third record. Um, but... Like I said, we were all still working a lot then. So it was like this space that we just would like scurry out to when we all had a night off to a bit of work. And then, you know, we weren't there as much um, and it was a bit shit. Um, (laughs) And the new one's not that much better. But um, yeah, I again, even though I said I struggled like having the studio in my house and like it was often hard to work and I got no separation, Mm. I still did feel weirdly possessive about that. And I was nervous about like kind of clearing out that room of the house and moving it to this other space where it would be shared. And uh, but it's just been the best. And I really come home and get to have 
a bit of a break. So talk to me about collaboration between you and the band members. How, how does that work in your band? Based on what I've learned from like most other bands we meet, our band seems slightly less collaborative than a lot. We have always worked in that more traditional mode of like the songwriter presents the song kind of thing and that we write songs that lend themselves to that style where it can be presented by one person. That almost folky singer-songwriter thing has like been hiding like deep down at the core of our band <laughs> like it always has and I still see it in that way a bit. Um, so yeah, I reckon 90% of our catalogue has been me being like, here's the song. Yeah. And then we'd sort of arrange it as a group. Yeah. But in terms of like lyrics, melody, structure, I was usually, yeah, had something ready to roll. Yeah. In saying that, like we haven't had strict rules about it. Um, we've always kind of believed that, you know, the best idea should prevail. So if someone comes up with a riff or some crazy thing, you know, we've always welcomed it in. On the last two records, we've had more collaboration. The last one... Um, uh, our guitarist Dean, he wrote one song and then we had a few other songs that just welcomed in like a lot of like sections and chords and riffs from everybody else. And then, yeah, on this new record, I feel like Dean's basically growing as a songwriter. He's he's done two songs for the new record and he and I co-wrote one as well. So Great. Um, and yeah, just like sharing the gear in the studio space. At first you have this like eh, kind of fear, <laughs> but... um. Yeah, I've just learned to like chill out and, and it's amazing. It's really, I've learned so much from just like, you know, welcoming someone into your, yeah. into your little circle. That's great that uh, you're open to it. Well, like I said, even from the early days, even though I was always writing, we all believed that the greatest idea should prevail. Mm. And Dean was just writing stuff. Like he's a very modest person. I'd hear him noodling away at things at soundcheck or you know, just in the corner at some studio when we're hanging out. And like, I'd hear something enough times and have to say like, what is that? Like, yeah. that sounds amazing. Like, we should play that. And um, yeah, he's always been really comfortable with the idea of me singing his songs because um, that's another thing we've really valued is that, um, is like having defined roles in the band. Yeah, um, consistency. Yeah. How do you go collaborating with producers well, Matt's really the only producer we've worked with. And you've had a couple of self-produced records too, haven't you? Yeah, so we self-produced our third one, Pudding mm. Head, and the new one that's just yeah. come out, we did ourselves. And then Matt did number one, number two, and number four. So Matt Redlick, <clears throat> who I went to high school with, <laughs> um, what drew you to him? What drew us yeah. to him? Well, uh, when... Uh, we were, the band was still very young. We'd done like a little bit of recording ourselves, um, like at the union stuff, but it was still, it was very amateur. We were just having fun. Um, and then we thought, oh, it's time to go to a fancy studio now. <laughs> Things are getting <laughs> legit. So we went to a, a proper studio, um, with a producer and, uh, basically I think we aimed too high. We thought let's do an album and, uh, there wasn't really the money or the time for it. The whole thing was tense and we didn't get the results we were chasing. And yeah, that was a bit of a, a low moment for us where we were like, I thought the band was just 
crap. I was like, this sucks. I've had, had felt very low about myself and my songwriting. Nearly ready to be like, I'm That's sick it. of this. Yeah. Mm. And um, our manager at the time, Ben Priest, he knew Matt Redlick. So he said, why don't you guys have a go working with Matt? Um, uh, he'd worked with some other bands that Ben was working with and... Um, we were like, sure, all right, let's have a go. And honestly, Matt kind of like lit the fire again for our band. Working with him was a huge turning point for mm. us because we really have always been a rock band at heart. Um, and we spent most of our time playing together in a room with like not many modern bells or whistles, no click tracks. We just weren't interested in that kind of thing. And Matt was just gave us this sense of freedom. Like we recorded under his parents' place in East yeah, Brisbane. Yeah, I remember with his tape machine, yeah. you know, and he was super relaxed about all the things we'd kind of been taught to worry about at uni, like bleed and being out of phase and stuff. Yeah. Like he didn't give a fuck. He was like, put Daniel just there on the drum kit. He set up this big old broken amp and ran the um, roads through it. And it was like blasting at the drum kit. And we recorded all that together. And I did like vocal in the room. The first song we did with him was one called Sad Rude Future Dude. Yeah, I just remember laying on my bed at home later that night when he sent us like a bounce of it, just being like, fuck yeah. Like, we're back. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> we can do this. I was yeah. so excited. I felt like I'd found a kind of musical soulmate in a yeah. way. Like he was definitely a personality that I'd been searching for that, um, you know, I didn't know that world existed. I'd never seen a tape machine. I'd never worked in any studio environment where it was like, three mics on the drum kit sounding yeah. the best I've ever heard it. And it was just fun. It yeah. like kind of reflected what it was like to actually play in a room. He's definitely that kind of guy, really creative, really open to suggestions. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always been fond of him, even though that in grade 12, he got the music award and I didn't, I was really <laughs> oh, A bit jealous. of a sore point there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hold grudges. Uh, no, he's, um, he's fantastic. And I'm so glad that he's got so much success now producing bands and, and, you know, playing in bands and stuff yeah he definitely feels like um like if our band was a planet he's like a moon yeah <laughs> you know yeah even if we're not making records with him like he definitely exists in my mind yeah. and like i know he's not that far away like i feel like you know um if the band's lucky enough to continue for a long time i just absolutely can see us doing more records with him yeah. when it feels right it's yeah. almost like after a while we're like we need to go back to Matt. Like if we lose our own minds and we need You need that, that stability. Extra person, yeah. How many moons do you think the band has? <laughs> well, probably just him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. You're like Earth then. Yeah, just but if we're moon. like Earth and Matt's like the moon, then he's getting further away oh, <laughs> every <yeah>. year. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, your Triple J support. Do you think that the that Triple J has sort of shaped your career in Australia? Oh Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd use the word shaped, but like there's no doubt they've been a huge part of it. Mm. They, yeah, have just supported us massively. Um, sometimes I don't really know what to add to the story i mean i love talking about how it began because at first it wasn't such a smooth relationship we um had put a couple of songs on unearthed and steph hughes was i think doing home and hose yeah. then with dom, with dom yeah. and she played one of our songs and um that was the first spin we ever got i remember 
my housemate at the time like busting through the front door being like dude you're on triple j and i was like in the shower i like ran out just wearing a towel and we put the radio on and we were just like this is the best yeah it was like such an exciting moment um from there that's when we're like time to get serious and we went to that studio tried to make an album um and uh we we put out a song called sea strangers which i hate (laughs) it's so shit um, and we thought it was a banging single and we sent that to Triple J and very rightly so they were like, nah, you know, they gave it one token spin, but it didn't land any rotation or anything. And, um, yeah, that was like, oh shit, maybe this isn't as easy as we thought it would be to just, you know, keep the ball rolling here. And, um, our manager at the time was, you know, obviously trying to talk to them and pitch the band and stuff. And, um, yeah, the response was like pretty lukewarm for quite some time. And it wasn't actually until quite some time later that I think Richard Kingsmill saw us play at Big Sound mm. um, and must have had his first interaction with Good Vibe Guy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. Anyway, he saw a gig and um, I think he could see the band in a, in a light that wasn't really being reflected in the recordings at that time mm. um, and, and had a bit more faith in us. Um, yeah, after that we recorded some like half decent songs and it kind of grew from there. And, um, yeah, I guess we've always just tried to nurture the relationship. Like, I think we all just have a pretty square understanding of how important radio is, Mm. especially for a career in a small country like Australia. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've just kind of tried to see them as. Um, friends and peers and respect them and be responsive when they've got requests for us and I don't know some people might think that we've like nurtured that relationship too much but I think we've just seen it as like really integral to what we do yeah I don't think that that that's a thing I don't think you can nurture something too much with someone who's as powerful as they are (laughs) yeah and I mean we've always just tried to be doing our best too, you know, like, um, I would be disappointing if people genuinely thought we were releasing shit music (laughs) and they played it (laughs) because there's some kind of conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah. That's not happening. Um, I remember the first time I saw you guys play, um, was at a triple J event at the hi-fi and you guys played with Dave McCormack from Custard. Oh, what a cool first thing to see. Yeah. And I remember, um, good vibes guy was definitely there and (laughs) in overdrive yeah he was in overdrive that night and i that's the first time i i I noticed it actually i was like whoa he's so different to how you know how how he is talking to you backstage and um and i remember um day because i i've played um with david quite a bit and i remember david's face when when you guys played apartment he came out and sang with you and I remember he was just like, holy fuck, these people like play it way better than Custard ever did. <laughs> that was such an exciting night. And you got, were you a Custard fan? Yeah, absolutely. That was um, another one. Thanks to dad. We had the hottest 100 oh, of yeah. that year with the ice cream cone on the yeah. front. God, that's a good one. It's got like Wonderwall, Gangster's Paradise. Um, what year was that? Last 90- Goodbye by Jeff Buckley. Yeah, right. Um, 94 or something? I want to say 90... Yeah, I think you might be right. 94. Yeah. It's got the Nick Cave, Kylie Minogue yeah. song. And that it had Apartment on it. Yeah. And when you're little and you're listening to that, like you don't differentiate Custard from, 
Coolio or Oasis, sure. you're like, these guys are fucking legit. Yeah. <laughs> They're on my ice cream was, cone CD, you know? <laughs> that was a really great song. Yeah. And we just loved that song. And um, yeah, I think when we got invited to do that gig, like classic case of the radio, it's like everyone's got to cover an Australian act yeah. and we'll get a bit of um, like on stage kind of collaboration going on. And yeah. Our manager, Ben, was like, we should hit up Dave McCormack. And we were like, oh, he won't want to do it. But he was like super agreeable, came up. We practiced and practiced and practiced (laughs) because we wanted to be so good and not let him down. (laughs) And yeah, we did one run through at Soundcheck. Oh, it was was so good. I was at that Soundcheck because I was singing with um, Hungry Kids of Hungry. Yes, that's right. I did that um, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Yes, another good Kylie Um, track. But yeah, I remember watching you guys at Soundcheck and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> oh, that was a dream come true. Like, yeah, I just um, love, I will never forget David's face when you guys started playing it. He was so like, holy shit. <laughs> I love that. Um, so, you, so you were saying before you recorded some stuff for solo albums too. Do you ever feel conflicted on who, what song should go to which project? In the early days, there was a bit more of those feelings, but um, I definitely reached a point where I tried to um, sort of get real and be like, look, ballpark is the thing that I'm best known for. It takes up nearly all my time. I need to start evolving this project into my dream project. Um, When I had that like um, sort of division between the two, like they were almost in competition, um, it was too easy to... Um, like retreat into my solo project, which was obviously just me and feel like that was the more natural one or that there was some like truth to it. Um, And I got sick of that. I was like, it's time to do whatever is necessary to make the band like, you know, the ideal thing. It's got to be the thing where I wake up and I'm like, I'm stoked to be in this. Like, this is what I want to share with people. And that's been a long journey. I honestly feel like this new record is like, where we've hit our stride and I feel like I've finally made something where I have zero hesitation in being like, please, would you listen to my album? Mm. Whereas previously I'd always had this little bit of hesitation or shyness. Yeah. Or don't, s- you don't have to listen to it. Actually, yeah. just put it in the bin. Yeah. yeah. That's my, my general. <laughs> that's my general go-to when I give my album to anyone. But yeah, I think to begin with, um, I would sort of write songs. And basically it was like all the... Ones that are up-tempo and fun and cheeky go to ballpark and yeah. anything that was a bit more low-key, I was like, oh, that's not going to suit. So it, it would just go in the, the solo project. Yeah. But you have some like really sincere sort of mellow songs in ballpark music too. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing that drove me out the wall was for as long as I had those two projects kind of seemingly in competition, it was like it restricted each project to like um, one narrow kind of mode. Mm. Whereas, yeah trying to make ballpark be um you know my true voice for making music meant including everything and yeah. i think it's been interesting over the years to hear my bandmates go like there's aspects of your solo project which we want in the band like yeah, what have right. we got to do to make it so that those attitudes or sounds can enter like what or what's happening here that's preventing you bringing that in because we want to be as good as we can be as well that's awesome yeah do you feel like you've now been successful merging the two absolutely yeah there's like a weird um poppy um agreeable part of me that when i'm writing and working with the band you kind of almost rudely assume 
oh, they'll want it to be like this. It should only get X amount of weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I've found like now I'm more confident to like, you know, persist with some of the weirdness and, and also flattered when they're like, dude, we like this. Like, let's not change anything. Like, this is cool. Let's keep the strange things that I previously would have thought weren't appropriate or whatever. Yeah. So we were just talking earlier about um, about Beck and how he's so good at incorporating weird little strange things. Do you feel like that's really inspired the kind of songwriter that you are to sort of keep things interesting and add some strangeness in where you can? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that that was another big part of the solo stuff with my own pet radio. Because it was just me and it didn't seem like a band so much. I took more liberties with the production, taking a much more modern cut and paste kind of um, aesthetic to it, which I shied away from in the band. It felt a bit dirty to go in and cut the session up and, you know, really trash it. Uh, But yeah, we've just got more confident and taken more risks as we've gone on. Mm. And yeah, like I mentioned to you earlier, someone like Beck is someone that's just very firmly planted in my brain always at the back there reminding me like what does this song offer you know how do I take this from sounding like just a band playing at the pub and give it something spicy yeah well (laughs) I think you've really succeeded in this last album you know I've I've got to listen to it for a a week and a half or something I really love it I think thank you my first impression of it was that I feel like you've always been a songwriter that creates like earworms you know, that's the German translation, <laughs> direct <laughs> translation, um, where you repeat something the exact perfect amount to get stuck in your head. Oh, yeah, I love repetition. Some bands overuse it, some bands underuse it, and you wish you could hear the hook more, but I think you've got, like, the perfect balance of repeating the hook. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I um I played a show the other night, and right after I finished playing, your single came on the PA that I like you exactly. Yeah. How's that? What's that? I love you exactly. Oh, it's called Exactly How You exactly Are. Exactly yeah. How You Are. And it was funny because I sort of, you know, I'd obviously heard it quite a bit, but I didn't immediately recognize it as being your song so i had this this moment of like oh, i love this song and and then as soon as the hook came in i was like that's right it's full fuck music that's awesome and i was really excited to hear that <laughs> i was really excited to hear that chorus it's such a good chorus yeah well i think too like repetitions obviously a huge part of my writing mm. um, because you know i guess with my pop hat on you know that's like it's kind of like advertising your product. Like, <laughs> yeah. how about I show you again and again <laughs> and again? But the less cynical part of me, of course, I think repetition has like a very close relationship to the lyric. Yeah. And for a song like that where, I mean, that lyric is pretty cheesy on face value saying, I love you exactly how you are. So my thinking there is that like to really demonstrate like the sincerity of that sentiment, I'm just going to tell you over and over again like i'm gonna instead of shying away from it i'm gonna go towards it and be like this is what this is about so i sometimes like going for that almost claustrophobic sense of like telling someone the thing like to the point where it's like yeah almost a bit confronting how much they're (laughs) telling you that's lovely though and especially with that sentiment because everybody can relate to that everybody loves someone just the way they are even if it's not that you know it might be their dog (laughs) (laughs) so that brings me to my final question which i ask every guest um so tell me what's the your worst or strangest show 
or just the strangest thing that's happened to you because you play music? I was thinking about this this morning. I hope my answer will be adequate. I feel like my memory is really bad. It's fine. Everyone's is. I was going to just quickly say that like my worst moments on stage are definitely not remarkable ones yeah. and probably not even noticeable to someone who's in the audience. But I'm sure you've had the experience where for whatever reason, usually sickness, loneliness or whatever drives yeah. you into this kind of personal hell Absolutely. and you're trapped on stage and yeah. yeah, and it's hard to be a good vibe guy. Yeah. Sickness is really hard. Yeah. yeah. Especially as a singer, yeah. your voice is extremely sensitive to, well, obviously your physical health and your yeah. mood too. Like yeah. there's some nights where I'm just like, even though I've sung this set and rehearsed with the band for just thousands of hours of my mm. life, it's like... You genuinely start believing that you cannot get through it. Um, yeah, and it's just torture. Yeah. Um, but on a lighter note... Yeah, those aren't funny <laughs> stories. <laughs> I was going to tell a story. It's like, it's not the craziest thing, but I do think about it quite often because it still cracks me up. We played at the Corner Hotel in Melbourne years ago and we played there so many times. Mm. I don't know what tour it was part of, but we're having a great set great tour the vibes were super high some Good person guy was there that's it <laughs> some guy in the crowd was clearly having a great time too like completely stripped naked and like climbed up onto the stage and always takes i'm always the last one to notice because i'm kind of projecting <laughs> outwards and i look behind me and there's this naked man on the stage <laughs> and the band's like what the fuck do we do i think our guitarist wanted to deck him <laughs> and then the security came and grabbed him and like dragged him off the stage and we had like sort of stopped playing being like what is happening and um they just booted him out those back doors oh, no, at the naked. corner yeah and oh, just locked no. him out there it was like it was cold too it was like a winter show and i just always think about that guy and be like what, what happened, happened to yeah, him how was the rest of his night like what was his immediate plan of attack because they like the security guards took great delight in just locking those, oh, you know, those doors yeah. there. Yeah, it was just like... It's like straight out, out onto yeah. the street. He's just out there like, oh, man. shit, <laughs> my plan has fallen apart massively. But I wonder how much of a plan he really had. Yeah, that's it. I, I feel guess, like that was a pretty... Yeah, <laughs> if it was ever part of your plan to go on yeah. stage naked, maybe being <laughs> out on the street naked in Melbourne's not such a big deal. Yeah, maybe he was fine with it. Maybe he just walked home and was like, oh, well... <laughs> It was worth it. <laughs> worth it. <laughs> uh, that's really funny you tell that story because I just interviewed Shane from DZ Death Rays last week and he his story was also about someone getting naked on stage yeah. and just hitting his dick against the guitar. <laughs> yeah, people do some weird shit. I think, like, you know, we keep joking about good vibe guy, but mm. I feel like it's almost like people can sense that you're letting this, like animal part of yourself out and they yeah. want to do it too yeah. people do some weird shit at gigs yeah. they just get into this frenzy and i know take some crazy liberties get carried away yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love that that happens though i mean it would be boring if these things didn't occur for sure and i think too growing up playing like heavier music for a long time like that whole like aggressive moshing sort of side of um of shows was something that me and the twins too played in bands like that. We were all used to that. So yeah. sometimes people mosh at our shows to songs like it's nice to be alive, which yeah. is like the most <laughs> dandy kind of thing. 
but it all, yeah, we always just laugh at it. I really like seeing people just, you know, kind of let their freak flag fly. Yeah. It's part of the whole thing for me. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Hey, thank you so much for coming to my house and my being on my podcast. It's really nice to talk to you. Yeah, you too. And um, all the best of the album. When's the album tour? Uh, starts this Friday. Great. Yep. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully this will be out by then. See how we go. Yeah, cool. All right. Thanks, mate. Thank you. <laughs>